Water. Four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. And welcome to Animates. I'm Paige. I'm Chris. And uh, as you could probably tell from that intro you just heard, we are discussing once again Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, and this time we will be talking about characters, themes, ideas, plot points from season two of the show. Uh, excuse me? It is called Book Two? Oh, Earth. my apologies. Book Two earth and not like planet earth like david attenborough style talking about the platypus bears habitat and stuff i would like watch that. that oh dude <laughs> whoa okay uh avatar creators if you happen to be listening to the show Paige and i are willing to discuss the purchase of a earth planet earth style documentary about the animals in avatar land yeah for sure <laughs> And the platypus bear begins its day by laying an egg. <laughs> Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord. Yeah, that would be cool. Okay. Yeah, that is a thing that we didn't mention. Um, it is a show. It So it calls its seasons books and its episodes chapters. So it's really pushing the idea, I think, of it this being like a coherent story. Um and I think that it's really maybe the only show we've watched so far where, like, if you don't watch it in order, you're going to have no idea what's going on at all. It is almost entirely plot-driven. Mm hmm And, okay, so now that we're into the second season, we can kind of start to talk about the general structure. Is this, is this a monomyth? Does it have hmm. all of the qualities of the monomyth? I don't know, because I feel like it's missing some, like, essential elements, you know? There's no mentor that is dead during... Like, I guess you could think of it as being um, Aang's mentor, but typically speaking, there's, like, a, a older mentor to the hero who has to die. Something bad has to happen to them to let the hero come into their own. And it kind of seems like there isn't that person. And There's also, like, no meeting with the goddess. There's, you know, none of that stuff. So it might not fit perfectly. But before, sorry, before we start getting into structure and stuff like that, we should probably go over new entries to the, to the season because as fun as everybody is in the first book, in the second book, we really get to see the rest of what is ultimately a stellar cast. The band finally completely gets together for every group 
and you really look back and you go, how did we ever live without Toph? Uh, how did we ever survive without this person? How did we ever have a villain as good as Azula? Like, you just look back and you're glad you're here. You're glad you're finally into season two. Oh, absolutely. Do we want to start with our addition to Team Avatar? Do we want to start with our new villainous squad? Team Avatar first, because they are our uh, main group of protagonists. Toph, for those of you who are unfamiliar is one of the best characters in the show. And Toph is a... Well, I suppose it's best to describe her based on how she is first introduced to Team Avatar. Team Avatar is roaming around the Earth Kingdom. And at this point, Aang is considered to be a waterbending master, which only took him a couple of months, which they really kind of undersell how big of a deal that is, because usually it takes most of the Avatar's young adult life to master all the elements, and Aang has already mastered two by the time he's 13. Mm-hmm. Pretty big deal. So we've got them roaming around the Earth Kingdom, and they, I forget the impetus, but they end up trying to earn some cash. They're low on cash, and they hear about this tournament style fight that goes on underground and so they attend it and it's basically pro wrestling but with all the pro wrestling stuff being earthbending instead mm-hmm. you still got all the there's classical a, a, a champion called the boulder the rock mm-hmm. <laughs> all these personalities these weird gimmicks like really tough dudes, really feminine male wrestling. Like you, you run sort of a game. It's totally based on the WWE. And in the ring, they the the champion comes on stage, and the champion is this little tiny girl. She's also blind, but she destroys every other opponent. Clearly a masterclass earthbender, and Aang is like, Katara's like, we need to find you an earthbender teacher. And Aang's like, how about that chick right there, (laughs) that little girl, let's do it. And they try to chase her and get her to teach them, but she's like, nah, man, and she spits and says, I don't want to do that. You're going to have to find somebody else. She runs away. So... We're exposed to this trash-talking, pro-wrestling-style, Master Earthbender blind girl. And it turns out to be a pretty accurate portrayal of Toph. Um, But they later find out she's living a double life. Yeah, she is. So she is... So Toph is the one character that we're told a last name for... Throughout the uh, first Avatar series, her last name is Beifong, and the Beifongs are one of the uh, wealthiest families in the area, and apparently her parents really have no idea of her abilities, and they've always thought of her as very helpless and fragile due to her disability, and so rather than trying to, like, 
help her live a full life, like, and make sure that she has, like, you know, accessibility supports around her disability. They just, like, assume that she's completely helpless and keep her super shuttered into her home and are really overprotective. Yeah, we do get this sort of nice disability ability theme going on uh, because the Avatar tracks her down and they're like, oh, we're here to see Toph. And their par- her parents are like, well, Toph isn't even a, like, she doesn't really even earthbend and mm-hmm. she couldn't possibly be the person you're looking for. So they get like a really bad earthbending teacher. He's like a dude running a fucking private school for profit to like teach mm-hmm. earthbenders. And they they keep pressuring Toph. Aang even attends dinner with the Beifongs because he's the avatar and they're honored to have him. And they end up throwing food at Toph with airbending and basically trying to get her to own up to herself and they get kicked out. Like they, they don't get the Bayfongs ask them to leave and Toph's like, never come back. Well, naturally, Aang is not finished. Aang is unhappy. Ergo, um, I forget exactly what happens, but a bunch of people find out a bunch of the wrestlers get mad at Toph because she's stolen money for, they believe that she's cheated and stolen money from them. Mm -hmm. So all those pro wrestlers basically like try to ambush this little girl and she destroys every single one. And her parents eventually catch the spectacle. They see this, earthbending master which she sees with earthbending by the way like she feels the vibrations in the earth she can see through her feet basically Mm -hmm. which at first doesn't seem like a big deal but it actually is a huge deal in the avatar world like absolutely huge and her parents how do they respond do they respond as proud and wow you found a way to live with this what turns out to be an actual ability, not just a disability. How do they respond? Well, Paige. Utter denial. <laughs> they, they, he basically pretends like that didn't happen. He literally, after seeing that, insists to Aang and Sokka and Katara that his daughter is literally, and I quote, tiny and helpless and fragile, and says that she will never be able to live a normal life. So even though he saw that, like, She's barely disabled by her blindness and that she is, in fact, like an earthbending master at the age of, what, 10, 11? She's very young. He just further insists that she is completely helpless and can't do anything and is like says he's going to be like even more. They're going to be even more overprotective, even more restrictive over her activities. And of course, she's like, fuck this. And she runs away. And, and that's how she joins Team Avatar. She joins Team Avatar. She hates flying on Appa because she can't see. She can't see when she's on Appa. Mm-hmm. And she's tough and she's like the shit talker. She's really like, uh, they portray her as very, I don't want to, stereotypically masculine. She's a, she's a tomboy, you know? That's what, that's, it's, she's supposed to be very clearly a tomboy. And 
there's a lot of tension between her and Katara. Um, there's, you know, a whole episode where she keeps insisting, like, you know, Katara's like, well, why don't we all do this? And Toph's like, I don't need any, you know, I carry my own weight. I don't need your help or anything. But Katara is not so much frustrated because she feels like Toph needs help. She's just trying to politely tell Toph that she needs to help everyone else because they're a team. You know, there there's some struggles with her on um, integrating into Team Avatar, and the strife is mostly between her and Katara. And the psychology of it is pretty interesting because Toph is overcompensating. She is <laughs> she insists on handling everything herself because she hate she's just escaped her parents who refused to let her do anything on her own. So she's overcompensating, um, not only insisting that oh, I can do everything that other people do, but I can do it better and I will take care of myself and I don't need any help because any insistence that I receive help from others is tantamount to saying that I am helpless. Right? So mm-hmm. we, see her, we see her have to cope with this overcompensation, which she eventually gets over, but she only gets over it because Katara insists on pushing the issue. So... Yeah, they actually, you know, and she never totally, completely gets over it. And, like, we see her in um, in Korra as well, and even as, like, an old woman. It's just part of her personality. And they play it for laughs occasionally. Like, uh, they're putting up flyers at one point, and Aang's like, we should split up. Toph, you better go with Sokka. And she's like, why? I can do it on my own. And then she, like, puts, you know... Um, glue on the poster and slaps it up on the wall and it's completely backwards you can't even see it and she stops for a minute and she's just like it's upside down isn't it oh my god it is so and Toph opens up some of the funniest dialogue in the entire show um oh yeah for sure like she's constantly like just fucking with everyone about how she can't see she's like wow look at that and people are like what and she's like I don't know and like waves her hand in front of her it's it's, mm, very, it's good. <laughs> it's great. Um, so Toph is Aang's earthbending teacher, and it's really hard for Aang because we learn that elements have an antithesis, and the Avatar's home element is is antithetical to another, and that is their hardest element to learn. So for Aang, being an airbender, his antithesis is earthbending. Air is like. <laughs> free-flowing and moves around obstacles, whereas Earth is like, nah, man, I'm going to punch this rock in your face, and you got to, like, stand stable and tough and endure. So Aang has a lot of trouble with Earthbending, and Toph certainly doesn't give a shit about his problems. She's like, she calls him Twinkle Toes because, he, you know, he he's light on his feet and flighty, and she forces him to basically confront that inadequacy of his. And eventually okay. he, it works. Eventually she teaches him earthbending. And Toph, what else happens with her? Let's just get Toph stuff out of the way. Um, sure. Um, we uh, So badger moles are a thing. Um, yes. We saw badger moles with the like secret tunnel episode in season one and badger moles are natural earthbenders and Toph tells us just kind of offhandedly at some point that she learned to earthbend from badger moles. They're also blind, but use their feet to see. 
Uh, and so when she would run away, when she was sad as a kid, she would hang out with badger moles because she felt a kinship with them and she learned to earthbend from them. She, it's implied that she also teaches Aang how to see with his feet. It doesn't show it happening, but he uses it in, in the third season. So that's pretty cool. Well, what's even more dope is that the Bayfongs get pissed and the Bayfongs send uh, Aang's original earthbending master and one of the pro wrestler dudes to go apprehend Toph. And eventually they manage to succeed and they put her in a metal cage. And up to this point in season one, um, well, in season two, too, because we meet Boomy. Uh, but in season two, early in the season, we learn that earthbenders can't bend metal. And mm. or, or so the traditional conventional wisdom goes. And, for example, the Fire Kingdom built a prison for earthbenders on the ocean and it was completely made of metal. So they couldn't they couldn't bend and and well. Toph is put in this giant metal cage and she freaks out a little and then she calms down and then she begins inspecting the metal the way she would earth and eventually she finds oh hey check it out this metal has earth in it. And so in a single night Toph systematically creates an entirely new kind of bending because she needed to. Yeah, it's like no one before, like historically, everyone thought that basically metal was completely disabling to earthbenders, like the, because, you know, obviously there's earth all around you all the time. So that the best way to deal with earthbenders is to encase them in metal. You know, when we hang, we find, you know, Omashu has been taken over. So they have King Bumi, an extremely powerful bender, like in a metal coffin suspended in the air and only his face is out of it, right? Because metal is completely disabling. But Toph is just like, nope, fuck this. Like, I am not accepting this situation. I am not accepting that I don't have control over this situation. I am going to get out of this. And she ends up discovering that what everyone had thought for thousands of years is completely untrue and that metal is, in its own way, a type of earth and learns to bend it and escapes. And it's it's basically very clear that her blindness allowed her to do that. That, you know, in a very, I don't know, sort of um, zen, I, I don't know if you would even call it zen, but in a very, I, I don't even want to say eastern, it's too general, but I don't know. You, It is my impression that there are like philosophies or ways of thinking that is like, you must uncloud, you must not see to actually see. You must mm-hmm. close your ears to actually hear kind of kind of crap, like not crap stuff like that, right? Yeah. So well, basically- yeah, because they show that like basically she's inspecting the metal by like she's like punching it and she's seeing it the same way that she sees through vibrations. And through that, she's able to like, you know, as she does it for long enough and she gets more and more attuned with it, she's able to see that there are many tiny bits of earth suspended throughout the metal, right? Um, Her ability, the fact that she sees through vibration also allows her to be like a human lie detector, Um, except for Azula. (laughs) But um, like everybody else, um, when they lie, 
she can feel it. She's so sensitive to the vibrations that she can feel people's heart rate, uh, heart rate and breath increase when they lie and is able to tell whether or not people are lying. Yeah, so she sees by not seeing. An interesting idea for kids to mm -hmm. probably see. And I think that's pretty good for her. Like, eventually she grows very close to the group. And it's kind of hard to understate how important metal bending becomes in, in the universe. Um, yeah, not so much super... in Avatar, but in The Legend of Korra, it's a huge deal. It's so important. Like, it is so important to the Earth Kingdom's advancement that metal bending is a thing. So Toph's systematic, like, single-handedly impacts the entire trajectory of the Earth Kingdom. Uh, all right. Paige mentioned Azula. Yeah. We have talked a lot about Azula between us two. And Azula is Zuko's sister. She is... Presumably older. That's the impression we get. But it's never made clear. She is the Fire Lord's favorite child. She is arguably the secondary antagonist for the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. To Zuko, you could argue she's his primary antagonist. Mm -hmm. The Fire Lord's primary antagonist is going to be Aang. So we've kind of got this split where it's brother versus sister, and Aang is fighting the Fire Lord, and Azula is a fucking sociopath. Um, she is very, 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 very bad. <laughs> well, let me just let me give a little bit of background on Azula and then we can psychoanalyze her. Um, so Azula gets introduced in the show because basically like Zuko and Iroh fuck up bad enough that the Fire Lord is like, OK, um, we're done with this. <laughs> so it seems that. Well, no, actually, that's at the end of season one, isn't it? That first she's going to arrest them, they figure her out, they flee, and then she attempts to kill Zuko. She attempts to assassinate him in, like, a boat explosion. And then basically, for the majority of season two, the idea is that um, Zuko and Iroh are now considered traitors that need to be captured and brought back to the Fire Nation for imprisonment and the fire lord has tasked azula with making that happen so she's kind of pursuing them uh in the same way that zuko was pursuing the avatar and because she knows she understands her brother very well and understands his obsession with regaining honor she believes that he will continue to chase the avatar and so she is also therefore often pursuing Team Avatar in the hopes that she'll find Zuko. Yeah, she's kind of chasing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And she she focuses a lot on Team Avatar, and but but she crosses path, paths with Zuko a couple times as well, and it never ends well. And mm -hmm. so Azula is... She's calculating, she's intelligent, she is manipulative... She is completely uninterested in the rights of other human beings. She expresses very little empathy. Uh, she... Okay. 
I would be an irresponsible psychologist if I did not say, listen, you should not psychoanalyze people in movies or films. You just shouldn't diagnose people with things because it's really, 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 really problematic when people do it sort of laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. However, it's also really hard to not consume media. And once you've looked at a lot of criteria and sort of read case studies and blah, 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 it's hard not to see, wow, this person is kind of showing some narcissistic behavior. Or, wow, this person mm-hmm. is kind of being antisocial. So Azula, throughout the show, shows a propensity for violence and manipulation that isn't particularly common in, like, quote-unquote, normal populations. She cares really not for her family. She cares about her dad, but in a very instrumental I want to have power sort of way. She completely doesn't care about Zuko. She's willing to betray him straight up. She also uses super cool lightning bending. Um, and her fire bending's blue. Yeah, I think they, just for funsies. Uh, blue, or to show that she's cold. Blue fire is more intense than red fire. Yeah, like I've always wondered, like, but they, they didn't they didn't show anything to show that like her fire is literally actually hotter than anyone else's fire. So I don't know if they just like it was just like an aesthetic choice. Yeah, you know? it, it kind of feels like they were like, ooh, she's it looks cool. It sets her apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But she also like she she I think intentionally meets clinical definitions of some type of antisocial yeah so behaviors at least like for example when i was talking about like toff can't can tell when people are lying except azula they literally have a moment i think it might be in season three but this is still the point where toff is like you know don't lie because i'll be able to tell and azula's like Really? Can you? I am a giant pink dragon with purple polka dots. Like, she says this absurd thing with absolutely no facial expression, no vocal inflection at all. And Toph's like, oh, like, shit, she's really good because she didn't she didn't show any of the physical signs of lying whatsoever. Well, Toph is basically a polygraph, and you can fool mm-hmm. a polygraph if you learn to do it. It's just mm-hmm. physiological control. So all that implies is that Azula is really controlled. But still, yeah. the point is, is that um, the, the core of what you said is absolutely correct. She's very manipulative. She mm-hmm. violates other people's rights with little cause. Like She threatens people with death earnestly all the time. Um She's an excellent liar. She's very charismatic, very well-spoken, highly aggressive. She shows these traits as a child. We see this stuff when she's like, she's got to be like seven or eight. And Mm -hmm. she shows these traits. She talks about death and killing and lying and and, uh, the ability to manipulate her parents, her emotions in a way that fits clinical standards of antisocial personality disorder. And mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really change. She only gets more aggressive as time goes on. And Paige and I kind of bounce back and forth between, you know, whether she's like a psychopath, whether she's completely devoid of empathy, 
or whether she's just a sociopath and has underdeveloped empathy because particularly her because of her upbringing. And we eventually I eventually in particular cited on the side that she's a sociopath, that she does have some empathy. It's not completely absent, but it's way underdeveloped. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's only um, and we think that a lot of that is because of the environment that she grew up in. Um, and if you want to, we can talk uh, for a minute about these flat those flashbacks that we have of the first family of fire um, and what we learn about Azula and Zuko, their childhood, and our first glimpses, our first actual glimpses of Fire Lord Ozai. Yeah, so we've got, um, we do a couple flashbacks. Zuko and Azula, they are interacting as children. We get to see Zuko's mom. We start to get a hint about what happened with that situation. And Azula throughout this period of time. She's playing with other people, but she zeroes in on Zuko very instrumentally, very manipulatively. For example, she complains to their mom about Zuko not letting her play, and she puts on this baby face, but she turns to Zuko and she's got this like devious-ass smile Like, I know how to play mom like a fiddle. Mm -hmm. Their mom at one point even calls Azula a, like, what is wrong with that girl? Like, they, she clearly knows that something is wrong with her daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know, there, you know, there's a point where Zuko is, like, feeding turtle ducks with his mom, and he's like, oh, want to see how Azula feeds turtle ducks? And he just, like, throws the bread at it and, like, kind of hurts it and scares it away. And his mom's all like, Zuko, why would you do that? And she's, like, very sweet and tender. Um, but what I think, it, like, part of what's important about these flashbacks are not that we see Azula displaying that behavior uh, from the time that she's a small child, but that we also see the kind of behavior of um, Ozai. So we learn that he's actually, so he's the second son. He's Iroh's younger brother. And that when, um, that he's like constantly seeking the favor of their father, the previous Fire Lord. And that when Iroh's son, Lu Ten, is killed... He immediately goes to his father and is basically like, Dad, fuck Iroh. He doesn't have an heir anymore. He's pathetic. He can't do anything. You should make me your heir. And his dad, somewhat reasonably, is super pissed off about it. Because that's a really shitty thing to do. (laughs) Um, And so apparently his... Apparently his dad tells him, according to Azula, that... um, because he was so shitty, he has to feel the same pain that Iroh's feeling and lose his son. And he co- commands Ozai to kill his son. And then something happens and Zuko doesn't get killed and the Fire Lord is dead and his mom is nowhere and his dad's the Fire Lord now. And we never really find out what happened there, but it clearly really fucked Zuko up really bad. It is expanded upon in comics and, like, in Korra. The the stuff that gets implied from just The Last Airbender is that his mom gets exiled 
she gets forced out and that it's pretty obvious that she had something to do with the previous Fire Lord's death. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize, like, in season three, Ozai very cruelly says something to Zuko to indicate that his mother is alive. Zuko had always assumed that his mother was dead. And Oz- basically, Ozai displays all of the behavior of a person with antisocial personality disorder. Um Power, aggression, lack of empathy, like even his own family, they're just tools to 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 use and discard. And being raised by a person like that would certainly have an effect on a young child. And as for why it didn't affect Zuko in the same way is because his father was never really around Zuko. His mm-hmm. mother pretty much raised him. Whereas yeah, he was Azula, he was closer with his mother, and then he got banished when he was thirteen to spend time with Iroh, both of whom are you know good people who endeavored to teach Zuko to be a good person. Right. So it's really, I think that it sort of sets up. I don't want to call it like a Cain and Abel allegory, but it kind of is, don't mm-hmm. you think? Like we kind of get yeah. the setup where both children are heavily impacted by their upbringing. We see that split uh, as they grow up through the show, Zuko becoming a different person, Azula kind of entrenching into who she is based on their father's influence. And it, it, it really comes to a head in season three, so we can probably leave it mm-hmm. there. Yep. Um, the only other thing I want to say before we move on from Azula is uh, that she has two gal pals, uh, two badass gal pals that she brings into her her own little villainous team, and they are pretty interesting characters in and of themselves. Their their names are May and Ty Lee, and mm-hmm. we find out that these are basically the only friends that Azula has, and Azula. Basic, they're both nobles. They're both aristocrats and mm-hmm. of, like, very well-known Fire Nation families. And she, she collects them for her mission. And we find out both are very, very highly skilled combatants. Ty Lee, both non-benders, yeah, but both, very skilled nonetheless. May would fit in kind of like the ninja category. And Ty yeah, Lee, ranged weapons. Ty Lee is a martial artist who, okay, Ty Lee is surprisingly important for Korra. She is because she's a chi blocker and chi blockers become super important for Korra. So Ty Lee, her martial arts work on the idea of chi, like chi points. Like there are certain pressure points on the body that if struck a certain way, um, disrupt the flow of chi, which is apparently instrumental in the usage of spiritual powers, such as bending. So Tai Li can attack people in a certain way and render benders inert. And oh, for temporarily. Right. Eventually it lets up. But she proves very effective to the benders because they don't know how to handle her at first. They have no idea mm-hmm. she can do that. 
And yeah, there's like a super fun um, also moment with uh, Sokka and Ty Lee that's very sort of um, Black Knight in Monty Python, The Holy Grail. Uh, where he she just like keeps like paralyzing each one of his limbs successively, and he keeps trying to fight her with each you know at, like with different limbs as his limbs become floppy and useless. Um. Oh wow, that is. I wonder if they intended to do a Monty Python style sketch there. Probably. I, I wish we could ask them. Um. I know, right? As a further testament to Azula's cruelty, Ty Lee is at a circus, and she's very happy. And her aura as, has never been pinker. Like she, yeah, she she's really into auras too. And, and Azula, Azula basically sabotages her career in the circus to get her to go with her. May agrees because May is bored. May is a goth, like a goth girl. Um, she's like, I'm so uninterested and bored in everything, and. Mm-hmm. Let's make clear she's had the hots for Zuko since she was a little girl. Yes. Yeah. But Tylee is sabotaged and she's like, Azula always gets what she wants. And Mm -hmm. that line right there, her friends have just recognized her ruthless nature. So even if they see it, you better believe that it's there. Yeah, they're really fun characters. I and I really like them a lot. Um, cause, and I love how different you know they are from each other. Like Ty Lee's this super cheerleadery, bubbly girl who, you know, she would like um, essential oils and crystal healing and also Pilates and shit if she was in the real <laughs> world, right? You know, she's super fun. And then May is like Chris said, sort of a goth chick. Um, And they have their own really distinct and interesting personalities and uh, that we get to see more and more of as the show goes on, especially in season three, which really um, something that I don't think we'll probably go into right now because it's more it becomes more apparent in season three. But it's are they really villains? You know, we see them in season two as villains because they're with Azula and they're fighting Team Avatar. But are they themselves really villains? Yeah, I think I think in that discussion we kind of forget that they're fucking teenagers. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Azula is a very powerful personality. Az- you know, I mean, just one girl who's a little bit more manipulative than the other girls can can get all kinds of, you know, other teenage girls to be really cruel to people in a normal high school setting. Imagine what Azula, you know, in a real world setting could get people to do. Yeah. And it's like Azula is clearly smart enough to know right from wrong. And the other two, they're kind of like trying to find their place in life. So, Mm -hmm. um, okay. So moving on from characters, uh, we, we can obviously talk about everybody else's progression, but I want to get to some other stuff first, just in case. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we go to some really great locations in season two, and we start to get to see some different cultures. Um, okay, so <laughs> up to this point, we've been led to believe that there are only two water tribes. And <laughs> we find out that's not the case. The group team Avatar goes into a swamp... And this happens before they meet Toph. In fact, something in the swamp 
leads them to believe that they'll run into Toth. It's the Banyan, it's called the Banyan Grove. And in this swamp, they meet waterbenders, but they are swamp vine waterbenders. And these are our hillbillies. And they're, yeah, they, um, they're pretty stereotypical, but also pretty fun. Um, so basically they get, they get drawn down. There's some kind of immense spiritual power coming from this swamp. And we find out that the swamp is actually all one giant, giant, giant tree called the Banyan Grove tree. And they have, they all have like visions in the swamp, but they're also being bothered by this like vine swamp creature (laughs) but it turns i made a lot of like wiggly motions over here but um so it turns it turns out he's one of like the hillbillies he's one of the hillbilly waterbenders but he's enlightened and he protects the swamp he bends the water in the vines to do stuff um but he also has a nice spiritual chat with the kids at the foot of the banyan grove tree and he lets us know that time is an illusion and so is death dude that (laughs) this is a children's show time is an illusion and he's like speaking in a hillbilly accent time is an illusion and so is death (laughs) uh their method of bending is also foreshadowing for season three yeah yeah, definitely. So they, um, he in particular, he bends the water inside of the plants, whereas the other, um, the others don't really, you know, he, they know him. He just like kind of hangs out out on his own and they just, you know, they're, they're, they're swamp dwellers. They're sort of like Cajun ish inspired and they ride on canoes that they propel as though they're speedboats using water bending, and, they and their wear... water bending style is really like intense looking. <laughs> and they're uh, they wear leaves for underwear mm-hmm. and hats, just like leaves. They don't have like woven clothes, just leaves. No, just straight leaves. Um, <laughs> I mean, so that's that's fun, you know. That's a fun there. Um, Katara gets really hype about it. She's like, oh my god, you're waterbenders! Woohoo! You know, because she hasn't met that many other waterbenders in her life, and she's interested to learn that there's another another style. Yeah, and so we see a similar cultural niche, or, or ecological niche, not for waterbenders, but for earthbenders. Okay, so we should say, again, the Earth Kingdom is modeled off of, like, China. That... Uh-huh. So, um, very similar architecture, cultural norms, they, you know, very typical continental land dwelling society. And mm-hmm. they're contrasted with, uh, so there's a giant desert, uh, kind of like the Gobi Desert. Uh, 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 <laughs> um, and they... In, in this desert, there are people, but these people are not typical earthbenders. They are sand benders. Because what is sand other than loosely packed earth? And the sand benders evoked a conversation in Paige and I, because Team Avatar, Avatar, Avatar goes into the desert. And they go there for something we'll mention in a second. But during their time in the desert, these sandbenders steal Appa mm-hmm. and drag him away. And Aang gets really pissed. 
and Aang convince, uh, sorry, not convince. Confronts. Yes, oh my god. Confronts <laughs> these people and and runs off to find Appa. So talk, talk about the Sandbenders, Paige. So, okay, the Sandbenders. So when we... They go to a little oasis town in the desert, right? And there they meet this professor of archaeology, essentially, that they team up with to go find some cool shit in the desert. And um, they come out of this cantina that they're in, and there are sandbenders near Appa, kind of checking them out. And the professor is like, sandbenders, go, shoot, and talks to them like they're animals, basically. Um but then we see that a group of sandbenders do steal Appa. But then, again and then, when Aang confronts them, it seems that uh, the it was like a bunch of teenage ruffians from one tribe that did it. And we're going to try and blame it on another tribe. And it uh, – and um, – you know, the the uh, the older people in their social group really give them hell for it, basically. So what I was wondering, but they're also like they're desert dwellers. They wear, you know, face coverings. Um, they wear their whole bodies are covered in long white clothes. They kind of remind you of like the sand people on Tatooine from Star Wars. And at first I was like, is this a depiction kind of racist? And then I thought about it and I'm like, no, I don't think the depiction's racist. I think that we're getting hints of racial strife that exists within the earth kingdom. Like the professor, you know, this um, semi-aristocratic man from the capital city of the country, like very well educated, talks to them like they're animals, talks to them like they're subhuman. And it seems like, you know, if um, if some people in this environment, we don't see that they have a lot, we don't really see any sandbender communities, and some of their teenagers are tempted to, you know, steal this animal to, and they sell it, they sell it to, to get money. So it seems like maybe there's some kind of... Um, like racial tension going on between the sandbenders and mainstream Earth Kingdom society. The sand people are easily startled, but they will be soon back and in greater numbers. Sorry, they, <laughs> they just reminded I when I was watching it just kind of reminded me of the sand people from Star Wars. Yeah, um, it very much does. And I think like probably there was some I don't know if there was inspiration from Star Wars, but it definitely reminds me of that. And um, I definitely think it's interesting how they sort of they showed they showed someone from mainstream Earth Kingdom society treating them poorly, then showed them doing something bad that would make them deserving of being treated poorly, but then showed that that was against the norms of their society and showed those people face consequences within their own society for it. So it really seems like they're, you know, they decided not to go into it, but they seem to be hinting at, you know, broader socio-political forces in the world. It is it is a very complex cultural microcosm. <laughs> so we yeah. ultimately what they do in the desert, like sand sandbenders aside, what they go when they go into the desert, they're going to find a secret library 
Uh, it is the library where supposedly knowledge from all over the world is collected by a spirit. Long Shitong. Long Shitong. It was an owl. Uh, but in that very disconcerting way that like talking owls turn their heads at you, like it's very creepy. He's very scary. Many sp- spirits in Avatar are very scary. <laughs> Which is a really good way to depict Earth, like animist spirits. It's like mm-hmm. they're alien and they have different desires and motivations than humans. Um, very, very, very good stuff. So they find the library and they go inside and they fuck it up. Um, yeah, because Wang Chi Tong's like, fuck off, like, people come into my library, and they try to use that shit for war, and I'm not down, because we learned that's where Zhao went, and, and I'm not down with that, I'm not And he cool killed the moon, so. Yeah, and so they're like, no, 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 we're totally not using this for war. <laughs> but Sokka, obviously, is trying to use this for war, so right? is such um, a bad liar. He's so bad. You have to assume that Wan Shitong makes him immediately and decides to let him do it so he can be right. Yeah, it kind of feels that way because also like one of of Wan Shitong's foxy assistants basically helps them find what they need to find. And they find this like dope ass um, planetarium calendar thing. It's really neat. And they also find a scrap of paper that says, like, the darkest day in Fire Nation history. And it turns out it was an eclipse, and they find out that there's going to be an eclipse soon, and that firebending doesn't work when there's an eclipse. And so they're like, hell yeah, let's go tell the Earth King we should invite the, invade the Fire Nation on the day we, that there's an eclipse. We should invite, that becomes... the, invite the firebenders to a tea party on the eclipse. <laughs> they can't hurt us. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that becomes like a really major, uh, like important plot point for two seasons, basically. It becomes a really important part. But of course, like Wan Chi Tong is like, fuck you guys, you're the worst. I should have never let you in. I'm going to kill you and also sink the library into the sand forever. Um, so he does and Toph stayed outside because she didn't want to go underground, um, but she can tell that it's sinking, and so basically she's using very powerful earthbending to prevent it from sinking into the ground and allow them to escape. And as she does that, sandbenders also come and steal Appa, and she can't both save Appa and prevent the library from sinking into the ground. So she prevents the library from sinking into the ground, and Appa gets taken. And it's very sad, and Aang gets very upset <laughs> and abandons everyone to go fly around morosely looking for Appa. Uh, so this leads into one of the funniest scenes in the entire show. Um, yeah. It's so funny, and I can't believe they put it in a cartoon like this. Um, mm-hmm. So they don't have water, and and Sokka's like, check it out. Here's a cactus. We'll drink the juice from the cactus. And it turns <laughs> out that it must be a peyote cactus. Because he trips balls. <laughs> oh, my God. Sokka... Sokka and Momo drink the water and both trip for like a day. And and Sokka, <laughs> Sokka, he hears Momo talk and he, he basically overtly starts tripping. Mm-hmm. And one of the funniest oh, yeah. things he says, Aang creates a mushroom cloud of sand. 
And Sokka sees the cloud, and he's like, It's a giant mushroom! I wonder if it's friendly! <laughs> um, and uh, All to the great chagrin of Korra, not Korra, Katara, who's trying to keep them all alive in the desert, um, and dealing with uh, Toph, who can't really see, not knowing where Aang is, and her brother tripping balls. It's very dire straits. Also, mm-hmm. you shouldn't trip in the desert. Uh, very dangerous. Yeah, very, very dangerous. it seems like it could be. I, unless yeah. apparently you're at, what is that, like, Fireman? Burning Man? Burning Man, Jesus Christ. I, I don't know what's up with me today. Language escapes me. Okay, but the thing is that the the theft of Appa and the discovery of the impending solar eclipse uh, make them all decide that they need to go to Ba Sing Se, and a significant amount of the season is spent in Ba Sing Se, and there's a lot of really, really interesting shit going on with there, especially with uh, political and economic themes, so I am really excited to talk about um, Ba Sing Se and think we should move on to that. So, uh, it should be stated, before that, I just remembered, mm-hmm. Zuko has been traveling around on his own, away from Iroh, for the first it's very half sad. of the season. <laughs> Zuko starts to go through his transformation. He is faced with the horrors committed by the Fire Nation. He has to deal directly with the kindness from Earth Kingdom families who've lost people in the war, and it's the... It is the vital foundation upon which his redemption and eventually his reparations can take place on solid moral and philosophical ground. Without it, he would just be an aristocrat being like, oh, I know it's best for people. But no, he has to struggle with and around the Earth Kingdom people who are suffering. And it he he's snubbed by them when they find out that he's from the Earth Kingdom, and you know what? It's a really good lesson. Being nice to them doesn't mean they forgive you. They don't owe you forgiveness. And all these other good messages about Zuko's countrymen's atrocities. So, very good stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of the sort of thing is, it's not just, because people had to suspect that he was maybe maybe from the Fire Nation. I mean, he looks like that. But um, it's when they find out specifically that he's he's the prince that they really they really end up having a, the, the particular people I'm thinking of having a big problem with it because it's like you and your family are directly responsible for this. It's not like you're just some random person from the Fire Nation. Like you have the ability to do something about this and you're not doing anything about it. And Zuko really starts to show, he kind of, he doesn't give up on chasing the Avatar, but that becomes secondary to his survival. And he really begins to question, especially when he joins back up with his uncle, he begins to question what he's doing and what he's been doing. Definitely. And I think... Through those early travels in the season, um, you know, we also learn a lot about the rural areas of the Earth Kingdom. It seems like there's a lot of really poor villages in the Earth Kingdom. We see some of the Earth Kingdom soldiers who are stationed on the home front 
really abusing and taking advantage of the of the poor and destitute in the rural areas of the Earth Kingdom. And it does a lot of good setup for what we see in Ba Sing Se. And I and I have other things to say about um about Zuko and his arc, but so many of them happen in Ba Sing Se and have a lot to do with what's going on in Ba Sing Se. They don't want to save them for a few minutes. Yeah. Do we want to talk okay. about Boomy now or later? Oh, yeah. Let's do Boomy now to try and make it a little more chronological because we can do Boomy quick, quick, quick. Um, and then we can do Bossing Say. Okay. So there is a there is a place. Do you, oh, frick. What's the name of the place? I totally Omashu. forget. Omashu. Omashu, right. There's a town called Omashu. It is basically a mountain that has been turned into a city. And it's... Amazing. They have an amazing earth, earth-based earth mail delivery system, and it turns out that Aang used to know a person from Omashu named Boomy. They were very close friends. They were both kids. Aang returns a hundred years later. Omashu is still a free Earth Kingdom city. He goes to meet with the Earth, the, the, the king of Omashu, because apparently they're a very powerful earthbender. And it turns out this kooky old man who seems n- as nut as nutty as any person can, I guess, be with it still being funny. Mm-hmm. Bo- this man puts Ang through all of these trials, and it turns out that this man is Ang's long lost friend, who is more than a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. And he's completely nuts. And, and this happens in season one. And, you know, we learn that Aang has like a strong ally in um, in Boomy. But then in season two, they they return to Omashu. I cannot remember why. It's early in the season. They return to Omashu. And it's it's very, very early in the season um, before that, like, May has gotten together with uh, Azula. And they learn that Omashu has fallen and Boomy is imprisoned in, like, a metal coffin suspended off the ground. And so Aang tries to save him and it's going very, very poorly. But then Booby, Bo- Boomy and his crazy, like, cra- yes, yes, yes. Let's all laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not, sorry. That's a great Spoonerism. Keep going. A, uh, a, 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 a blue-footed Booby. Um, but Boomy and his crazy like a fox situation is basically like, no, Ang, come on. This is going really poorly for you. It's going to be better if you leave. Trust me. I've got it under control. Aang's like, you're in a metal coffin suspended in the air. And he's like, Aang, I've got it under control. So Aang leaves. And then um, let's just leave it at that because it becomes important in season three. <laughs> but Boomy is a crazy person, um, but really fantastic. And Aang names his firstborn son after him, we learn in Korra. They make their way to Bossing Sing. And before mm-hmm. they even make it into the city, it is bureaucracy on bureaucracy. Like, oh my god, the like ferry, the ferry station where they're trying to get on the boats with all the other refugees. Yeah, and I'm okay. My 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 understanding of Chinese history is abysmal. I'll admit to that right now, and I should fix it. But I'm led to believe that like 
China had sprawling bureaucracies in, in many parts of its history, if I'm not mistaken, right? That is true. Yes. Like sprawling bureaucracies. Um, it was like a huge deal. And I can only imagine that Bossing Se is designed that way because of that, right? That that very well may be. And I also think they, um, they're also trying to make a point about sort of like authoritarianism, but that begins, becomes like a bigger deal once they're in the city. Where, whereas, um, whereas at the ferry station, it's sort of about like the, the sort of cruelty of, of petty bureaucracy, you know, uh, there are these really specific criteria that you have to make to get your ticket. All kinds of people are getting bothered about it. But then Toph goes up and she just shows the seal of the Beifong family and all of the rules go out the window and, you know, they get treated like royalty. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No wonder we grew up to hate immigration law. <laughs> like no for real like you sit there and you're like wow these this pregnant woman can't get into bossing say because of bureaucracy like it yeah is it's literally, literally for no reason at all it is literally what is happening now at the southern border yep that is literally exactly what is happening now at the southern border so like they you- went through all of this like uh, like horrible treacherous stuff to get there she's literally about to pop she's so pregnant and then they because of absolute complete bullshit they they she can't get on the ferry and so basically team avatar they refuse to you know, let these people, you know, die or not be able to get to Ba Sing Se. So they all go through this really, really treacherous path to get to Ba Sing Se instead. And also, and also, they ba- Suki's there. Yeah, they, they basically <laughs> play serpents past coyotes. Because that's yeah, what, but isn't like, that nice. like a person who smuggles people across borders is called a coyote? Yeah, but they're normally very bad people. Right. So this time it's Team Avatar. But looking at it now, (laughs) show this to your kids and let them be mad about it. Because then you can be like, well, spoiler alert, that's happening here, too. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like that's a very, you know, real world thing that it's just like there is, you know, there's the right way for people to get across, but they've made it so difficult for it to happen that people are crossing in this much more dangerous way, basically. They didn't really address the fact that they were essentially illegally entering Bossing yeah. Se, but whatever. <laughs> because because um, the show and these knew are that people, they... These are Earth Kingdom citizens. This is in the Earth Kingdom, and they're still doing this. Because they knew that it was the right thing to do, and they didn't want to, like... They didn't even question it because they knew we would know it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, And it's like very scary and very bad things happen. And there's a scary water monster and Toph starts to drown and she thinks Sokka's saving her. And she's like, oh, Sokka, you saved me and gives him a huge kiss. And then it was actually Suki. And Toph says to go ahead and let her drown, which is a great uh, part, Um, which also plays into the fact that Okay, not for the run of the show Avatar because Toph's too young and the age difference is too extreme. But I always kind of shipped Toph and Sokka. I was always kind of like, 
I hope in like five, ten years when Toph is, you know, a grown up that they get together. I, 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 well, I don't know. I always saw Sokka with Suki, so it's like I didn't do that as much. Yeah, I always kind of, like, I was, I loved the Sokka-Suki pairing, but I also just, like, kind of was like, I don't know, I kind of like a oh, toss Sokka pairing. Oh my god, Sokka and Suki would make Sokka, Saki, which is an <laughs> alcohol. Nice. Um, um, or Bakusei. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, they get across and they deliver, Katara delivers her baby and it's really fun and everything. And then it turns out that Azula is assaulting the outer wall of Bossing Say with a giant drill, but it's cool. They they deal they deal with that. Oh um, they stop you're, it before it like breaks through the wall, but they stop it and kick Azula's butt and they send her on home and they deal with it. But are, then you are but then they enter Bossing Say. You're overlooking one of the coolest steampunk scene like episodes in the entire show. Anyway, that's true. <laughs> um, so here's the deal. watch the ba- episode The Drill. It's very steampunk. Bossing Say is a city of walls, giant walls. There are three of them. Uh, and... Walls that really could only be created with the power of earthbending, and there are three successive rings of walls. For those of you who have seen Attack on Titan, it's like those walls. Yeah, um, it's just like those walls. They definitely like stole that. those walls from Avatar. Yeah, because Avatar came first, bitches. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so these walls play in a hugely important role in everything about Bossing Say because the political, social, economic arrangements that allow Bossing Say to exist could not without these huge semi-natural defenses. It's Mm -hmm. just like island nations that developed because they didn't have any natural predators, right? Because of their geographic makeup, so to speak. Um, Bossing says walls are so huge that the people on the inside can literally overlook everything occurring outside. They can and Mm -hmm. they do. Um, Yeah. Because they've stood for a hundred years the outer wall was only breached once, and that's just the outer wall, not the inner two. Uh, and it was mm-hmm. General Iroh himself who who breached the wall. Uh, but they were repelled, and this drill breaks through the outer wall, but while it's inside of <laughs> the wall, um, it, it gets sabotaged, so it basically there's just a giant metal part in the wall. So the wall is still intact. And at mm-hmm. this point, Azula's goal has shifted to taking over Ba Sing Se, which she wasn't which is sort explicitly of like- given. She wasn't told, go take Ba Sing Se. She just was like, oh, I'm the princess. I'm going to do this. Um, yeah. But it also becomes clear that Ba Sing Se has sort of like... In the mind of the Fire Nation, Ba Sing Se has, like, stood defiantly for a hundred years and is their major obstacle to a final conquest of the Earth Kingdom. Um, but it, it see, you, you learn very rapidly that Ba Sing Se with, does not itself think of things that way. So let me tell you a little bit about Ba Sing Se itself and its three walls and the situation in Ba Sing Se. Um, so firstly, there are three rings and the rings serve as physical monuments to class division in the city of Ba Sing Se. 
The outer wall is massive, so massive that it contains farmland within its outer reaches, but it also contains um, slums and refugees and all of the poorest people in Ba Sing Se. Then through another wall, there's a slightly there's a somewhat smaller area of the city that contains the bourgeoisie, your skilled artisans, your bankers, etc. And then there's an even smaller ring which contains the nobility, your first estate, um, your you know the king, the king's family, and other mega wealthy people. Uh, like aristocracy. Yeah, so okay. this Peasants. city is literally divided into three zones with walls between them, enforcing the um, the class hegemony, the class structure. Peasants, gentry, ruling parties. It's like, mm-hmm. um, and it's yeah, the poorer you are, the less defense you have, um, which means your lives are literally worth less. Um, in the city of Ba Sing Se, because you would be the first yeah. to die if you were poor. Um, and they also, they, they go into this as well in court. They revisit the fact that this is still a deeply class stratified society and what those walls really mean in Korra a lot. It's definitely like those class divisions are touched on in Avatar, but they really dig into them in Korra um, because in in Avatar, there's a lot of other political shit going on in Ba Sing Se that they pay more attention to than the the class divides. But it's 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 very obvious. They don't hide that mm-hmm. from the chillin's eyes. They um, don't. They don't. Um, but it turns so they get to Ba Sing Se, right? And they're immediately assigned a handler <laughs> who meets them and they get off the extremely dope earthbending train. Ba Sing Se has a really cool public transit system of earthbending trains, which I really like. Um, but they they get assigned a preternaturally cheerful handler named Judy, who completely controls everything that they're doing and finally puts them away in a cabin in the upper ring. And they're like, okay, we need to see the Earth King now. And she's like, okay, your request will be processed in six in, in two months. Um, and so they're like freaking out. And so they start to kind of dig around. Um, what do they find when they dig around, Chris? All right. So um, there is no war in Boxing Say. Um, okay. So the first thing is that they start talking about the war. And, and Judy is like, there is no war. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah, no, there's... <laughs> the Fire Nation is attacking your walls. And Literally, like, as we speak. And they're like, no, there isn't. Mm-hmm. Clearly, all the military generals are on the level. But everybody else? Uh, no. No, 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 no. And when the Avatar starts to go talk to people and make trouble, quote-unquote, um, Judy makes sure to make very disturbing telling faces behind the avatar's back to the citizens of Ba Sing Se as if to say, you shut your fucking mouth or you're going to disappear. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And it, and everybody shuts their mouth. And Aang is looking for Appa. 
And Judee okay. makes sure to impress upon every citizen not to say shit about black markets, um, animal traders, everything. Everything. Anything unsavory. And then at some point, Team Avatar really misbehaves and Judy is gone and there's a different handler and her name is also Judy. But then a few days later, that Judy is gone and the original Judy is back and she says that she had a, a lovely vacation at Lake Laogai. Um, it's very- but she seems even more brittle and terrified than she did before. Um, this all starts to make a lot of sense when the when Team Avatar decides to sneak into a party where the Earth Emperor is going to be present, and they're gonna they're gonna sneak in and they're gonna talk to him. And somehow the Avatar couldn't get an invitation, and it was precisely because he'd been making trouble. But um, Toph swings the Beifong dick around and manages to get her and Katara into the party. So they all sneak in and make tons of trouble. The Avatar accidentally reveals his presence, and they make a run for the Earth King, who is immediately shuffled out by these really... um, these armed guards who wear stone gloves and have these hats that cover their faces... They, they're reminiscent of, like, you know, the traditional, like, rice patty hat, but they're not made of, like, wicker. Yeah, so eventually they get shuffled into a side room where this shifty figure, who, by the way, Katara and Toph tried to fool and definitely didn't fool. He um, let it appear as though they had fooled him, but they clearly did not, you know? Like, they failed their manipulation check, okay? Mm-hmm. They rolled they rolled ones. Um, but he definitely passed his manipulation check. <laughs> and so they all get shuffled into this back room with this insidious green fire, I think, in in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we are and the... Meet we, a fellow named Long Fang. We are the Dai Li. And we... he's He, like, low-key is like, I control the day-to-day affairs of the government. He says it in a way that it's like, oh, this guy's important. But no, the coded language is... I'm in charge. The emperor is not in charge. And to her credit, I think it's Katara or Toph that says it immediately. They're like, wait, so the Earth King is literally just a figurehead. Like these teenagers very quickly don't play the game. They don't play the game. And, And they're like, wait, you're like the Earth King is just a figurehead. You are doing all this behind his back? Does he even know there's a fucking war out there? And and Long Fang is like, uh, he doesn't need to know that there is a war. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, state. and basically he says, deep ends up saying to them, state. like, behave yourself or you might never find Appa. You know? And, and so come to find out from our, our B-plots, um, Zuko and Iroh are now in the city. They, they started traveling together. They've come to, they, through Iroh's connections to the White Lotus, have assumed identities and come into the city of Ba Sing Se. And as they're traveling on the ferry to Ba Sing Se, they make pals with our own friend, Jet. 
but then Jet sees Iroh warm a cup of tea and becomes convinced, unlike anybody else, that they are firebenders. And so he ends up, like, busting into their job at a tea shop and, like, demanding that Zuko fight him. And it becomes, like, a whole situation in the street. And then he's arrested by the Dai Li. And we see the Dai Li literally hypnotizing him and saying things like, there is no war in Ba Sing Se. And so later, we we see that, like, the Dai Li are literally brainwashing people and using hypnotism. And Wong Fang will say, like, the emperor has invited you to Lake Laogai. And it will... Um, Activate. basically activate the conditioning sleepers, of people the, we've got we've got deep state sleeper agents um like don't let a conspiracy theorist nut theorist nut see the show because they're gonna yeah, be like right. oh my god it's the united states um <laughs> deep state but no there's actually a deep state in the show and yeah, there's a literal deep state. <laughs> and so everything about Bossing Say is like complete control over information. And nobody mm-hmm. knows there's a war except for the refugees and the dialogue yeah. and the military. And and so we end up in this like really weird situation where like Team Avatar has met back up with like Jet and the few of Jet's crew who are in the city and realize that there's something going on. Like Jet's friends are like, something like fucky happened to him. Like this is no good. And so they figure out the whole Lake Laogai situation and they go and they find there's literally an underground chamber at Lake Laogai. They try to save Appa. They don't find Appa. I'll explain why in, in a minute, but they have a big fight with, uh, um, with Long Fang in which he basically activates Jet as like a sleeper agent to attack Aang and Jet breaks free of his conditioning long enough to sacrifice himself to save the others and he may have died. It's unclear. <laughs> yeah, he's crushed by a rock. It's Yeah, he's he, it really definitely seems like he died. But they never say explicitly that he died. But we never see him again. Um, so aside from... Basically, Aang, Team Avatar, enlightens the Emperor. Like, he, they expose the Deep State. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that the, the, the Dai Li very carefully c- cover their tracks. Um, but Aang manages to expose the Deep State. Long Fang is deposed. The Earth King is like, I'm in control now. I hate that I know the truth, but I will do my best. Like, to his credit, the Earth King is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's he's just- kind of dumb. Yeah, so the, the Earth King is kind of like a schmuck. He's not very smart, but he is a good guy. But the thing is, his, his stupidity fucks everybody because they, like, expose it to him and he throws Long Fang in prison and it's all great. And Aang goes off on a side journey to understand the Avatar state, which I would really like to talk about here in a minute. And, and Sokka goes to do a thing. And then they were like, by the way, the Kyoshi Warriors should be coming soon. Our friend Suki is going to be leading them. And then three girls dressed up like Kyoshi Warriors show up and he's like, 
welcome. Like, we give you our utmost trust. But they're not fucking Kyoshi warriors. They're Azula and May and Ty Lee. And there's no one there to, like, recognize that that's a problem except for um, Katara. Because this is the time that Aang has been, uh, I mean, Toph has been kidnapped and is imprisoned. And Sokka and Aang aren't there. They're both off doing their own thing. And Katara's there, and she ends up getting thrown in fucking prison with Zuko, who also gets found and thrown in prison, all because the Earth King is dumb, and there's no one there to help him know that he's being dumb at this time, and it leads us to the final confrontation of the season. Uh, and, let's see here. So at this point, um, in before everything comes to a head, but after people have gotten settled in Bossing Say, we have a great episode called Tales of Bossing Say. My heart. And it's one of it is arguably the most heart wrenching episode of the entire show. Mm-hmm. Because also Tales, the greatest filler episode, like ever. Tales of Bossing Say tells the tale of Team Avatar, Iroh, and Zuko individually from their perspectives, except for Katara and Toph go together. And they each have their own arc that's very important to their characters. Aang looks for Aang looks for Appa. Momo Zuko, also looks for Appa. Very sad. Uh, Iroh has a little day out. Zuko kind of meets a girl. Like they they do their own things. Mm-hmm. This was the last episode that was recorded by our dear friend Makui Matoma. He died, unfortunately, um, after the episode was made, and the episode that he is in, his little tale, is really, really, tale really, of really, I- really, really fucking sad. It's um, really sad. So, it's, it's so- the tale of Iroh, and we see Iroh, he's, he, he seems like he's doing his shopping. You know, he's just, like, going through the market, and he's buying things, and he's being nice to people. And there's a little boy who's crying and upset, and Iris sings him a song and gives him a doll, and he calms down. And a guy tries to mug Iroh, and um, Iroh, rather than, you know, fighting him or giving him his money, critiques his stance. And they end up having a conversation about how, you know, what's going wrong in the mugger's life. And Iroh helps him turn over a new leaf, and then he... You know, some kids break a window, and at first he's going to tell them to own up for it, but then the guy's really scary, and he's like, let's all run, you know? And it's just Iroh going around, like, bringing happiness and goodness into other people's lives, like, giving people advice, like, being wise, being a kind person. And then he has a picnic basket the whole time, and he goes outside, and he goes up onto this hill with a tree that we've seen once before, if you're really paying attention closely. And he sets up a painting of his son and uh, lights a candle and sets out a food offering. And he sings the same song that he sung to the little boy earlier. And then he says, happy birthday to his son and how he regrets that he could save him. And he cries. And And then the episode's dedicated to Mako. He's on the hill and he starts singing the song. And then he starts crying while he's singing the song. And you're just like, fuck. Rip out my heart! It rips out your fucking heart! Like, I'm like, okay, show, you just, like, took a serrated knife, just, like, stuck it into my chest and sawed out my my heart. 
And if you're paying attention really closely, you can see it's literally his son's grave. Like, it, like they showed us that exact hill when they were showing us a flashback in an earlier episode to Iroh burying his son. So it's his son's birthday. So he's come to his son's grave to, like, make an offering and be with his son. Uh, and, like, he's, like, crying. And, and the song also, because it's, like, you know, leaves on the vine, falling so slow, blah, blah, blah. And then it's, like, little soldier boy, brave soldier boy comes marching home. And it's just, like, he's breaking down as he's singing about how the brave soldier boy comes marching home. And it's, like, his brave soldier boy will never come marching home because he died. So that's an entire <laughs> afternoon just destroyed emotionally. God. And then, like, the, also, there's like the last one in that is Momo's Tale, where it's Momo with like a piece of Appa's fur. Oh my God. Like going through the whole city, like looking for fucking Appa. And then he finds an Appa footprint and he falls asleep in Appa's footprint. And that's also heartbreaking. It's it's very it's very emotionally charged episode. Um, yeah, and like Zuko like meets a girl and is trying to have like a good time with the girl and be normal, and he's really struggling and awkward. And but there's a really sweet moment where the girl's like, "Yeah, normally these candles are lit and it looks beautiful, sparkling off the fountains." And he makes her close her eyes and like secretly firebends and lights all the candles while her eyes are closed so that it's pretty for her. And they kiss, and it's really sweet. And he runs away. Yeah, and then he run, he runs away from her, and he like slams the door when he gets home, and doesn't won't talk to Iroh, who just asked him how it went. But then he cracks the door and is like, "It was nice." And All then right. closes the door, and it's really cute. No, we only have a little bit of time left, so let's talk about the end of the season. Um, okay, everything comes to a head because mm-hmm. some very important character moments occur. Aang has gone off to learn about the Avatar state, which we will have to talk about at the beginning of next time. And okay. uh, unfortunately, um, unless we want to go long, which I don't. Uh, I don't um, well, I, we'll just like really, really, really quickly, like without going into it, we can go into it later because it's crucial to, to the ending. Basically, he's he has to clear all of his chakras Um once you start, you can't stop, and if you stop in the middle, you lock a chakra, and he can't access the Avatar state at all. And when he's clearing the last chakra and trying to let go of Katara, he has a vision that something bad is happening to her, and he runs off in the middle of it, meaning that the Avatar state is um, – he, he, he should be locked out of it when he goes into that conflict. So Zula has taken over the Earth Kingdom, Neri, a person uh, fighting her – and she's taken over the Dai Li because she takes over, she offers Long Fang, um, you know, I'll give power. you power again. And he's like, fuck allegiances. I just want to be in charge. And uh, she obviously so, immediately betrays him. So she accomplishes what the Fire Nation tried to do with many, 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 many lives. Instead, does it behind everybody's back. Zuko and Katara are in jail. Zuko has physically manifested his inner conflicts as a disease that he has fought through and has apparently gotten over. He is a new person. He seems to have finally been like, I'm not going to chase the Avatar. I'm going to live a peaceful life with my uncle. Things are going to go great. I'm going to be a good person. And he Mm -hmm. tells the story of his scar to Katara. And Katara says, I have this magical water from the 
water tribe spring that I can heal your scar with. And Aang bursts in to rescue them, right as that's about to happen. But. Yes. Um, but. But, like, the thing is, like, nothing has yet really happening. Like, they're in prison, but, like, nothing's really happening. They're fine. But, like, about the time that Aang bursts in, Azula also bursts in. So they, they end up in this really cool chamber. Basically, Team Avatar has to fight off Azula and the Dai Li. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's some It's really not cool... going well. It's, it's not going, going very well. poorly. There's super cool bending, but it's not going well. And there's a moment where Azula's like, join me, Zuko. We will take him together and you will have your honor back. And fucking Zuko makes one of the best decisions for his character arc, which is a bad decision. He goes back. He reverts. He makes the choice to fight with Azula, earning Katara's scorn for a long time. Mm -hmm. And... Essentially turning the tide of the battle, right? And so we end up with a situation where, like, Aang is fighting... You know, they've split it up and, like... um, Aang is fighting Azula and Zuko, and Katara's fighting all of the Dai Li, and it's really not going well for either of them, and Aang is looking and panicking and not knowing what to do, and then he realizes that, you know, like he was trying to do when he was clearing his chakras, he has to let Katara go. So he builds a little earth bubble for himself, and he sits and he meditates, and he unlocks, he lets Katara go, and he unlocks the chakra, and he rises up, and he's in the Avatar state, and you know all shit is about to break loose, and he's going to win this fucking battle for them with the Avatar state, and then Azula lightning bends, and it hits him straight on, and and he falls to earth. She straight up kills Aang. Yeah. Yeah. He falls to earth. He's completely unmoving. Everyone runs to his side. Everyone stops for a minute. Like they don't even Zuko. They don't know what's happening. And everyone's freaking out like Aang's on the ground. He's not moving. How could he have possibly survived that? And then Iroh like jumps in. Iroh's like, go, go. I'm going to hold them off. And Iroh starts kicking ass because he's badass. And so Team Avatar all climbs onto um, Appa's back. And they fly away, and Aang is there, and he's dead. Katara heals he's him with the dead. spirit water, though. Yeah, but Katara, like, whips out, like, the spirit water. And she, you know, um, and it's just a little bit, and she, she, she does the healing thing with it, and she presses it into his back, and it just disappears into the wound. But for just the smallest moment, like, Aang's eyes flutter open and begins breathing again. Before he slips back into unconsciousness. And And it's a really, really intense moment. Because he was dead. He was literally dead. And they they address that at the beginning of season three, too. It's like, if she hadn't had that, like, vial of spirit water, if he hadn't interrupted her when she was considering using it to heal Zuko's scar, like, he would be dead. It would all be over. Despite the moment of fuck Zuko that you have... Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best moves they could have made for portraying an actual person's 
development. Because before that, they did this nice little, oh, Zuko's gonna get physically ill because he's fighting himself. And then he comes out mm-hmm. of this sickness and he's a good person now. It's like nice and neat and, and like childish. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, uh, fuck no. Uh, this is the real world where people relapse. Yeah, exactly. You know, because he he, like chooses to save Appa and that's when he has that illness because he can't like saving Appa from, you know, the Dai Li like is so contrary to his character, right? That he has this physical illness, but like, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. You don't do one good thing and freak out. And then suddenly all of the bad things that you've ever done are, are gone and washed away. And it becomes easy to make the right decisions. That's not how it is. And they very much show that. They very much show him struggling with that. And, okay, despite his reversion, very important changes have already occurred in Zuko that will lead mm-hmm. up to his eventual choices in the third season. But more importantly, he's fucked over Iroh. That is really the key conflict that this sets up, is that he's betrayed his uncle. And he can't even look his uncle in the fucking eyes. His uncle looks away from Zuko, as if to say, wow. Fuck yeah, you, like, it's incredibly painful. Like, uncle is so hurt and disappointed in Zuko and Zuko immediately viscerally feels that because even at the end of, of season one, you know, Iroh's like Zuko and Zuko's like, you don't have to say it uncle. And uncle's like, you know, just since my son died, like you're like a son to me. And it's very clear that like Zuko's father was never a father to him. His father is Iroh and he's just completely betrayed the man who has been his father, who has loved him and only wanted the best for him his whole life, who he's been, has been his sole companion for years, and he's just completely fucked him over. So it's a very palpable way to end, to end the mm-hmm. season. And it's like, they can't invade the Fire Nation because the Earth Kingdom has been taken over. It's like, everything is bad. Everything is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, they can't invade the Fire Kingdom, the Earth, the city of Ba Sing Se has fallen, Zuko has gone over to Azula's side, Iroh is in prison, and Aang is at death's door. Like, we've revived him for now, but who even knows what's gonna happen? It's like Season baby's, two's over, kiddos! It's like baby's Six first to game 11 of, demographic. <laughs> baby's first Game of Thrones end of season. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, basically and that sets us up for a bunch more fucked up shit to happen in season three we will talk about season three we're (laughs) we're gonna say it like that now every time season three we're gonna talk about (laughs) season three on next episode Mm -hmm. which will be coming very very soon um but until then, uh, once again, you know what? If you want to watch along, watch along. Send us an email, animates at gmail. Got that number eight. Uh, let us know what you think about the show, any theories you have, stuff you want us to touch on, stuff you want to hear our thoughts on. Uh, tweet at us, anime, uh, at animates on twitter.com. We've got a Facebook page, animates podcast. 
Um, and we also have a Patreon that you can find by looking up Animates on Patreon. We're just doing this to try and recoup some of our costs for hosting the content on SoundCloud. So if you want to shoot us a couple of dollars there, we'd really appreciate it. And as per usual, please uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast because it'll really help other folks find it. All right. Thank you very much. I've been Chris. I've been Paige. And we'll talk to you next time. This has been Animates. <laughs> <laughs>